funding research on these invasive grass species, as well as air pollution interventions, such as air filters, will have significant benefits for those living in fire-prone regions. Stabilizing the global climate will also help to mitigate the threat of catastrophic wildfires. Thus, action is needed, and we need to continue doing our part to minimize global warming. Now we have to worry about the grass. Like, I just can't. And we just felt like this was an important story to tell. You know, like you said, I think you have the best response, Hope. Now we have to worry about the grass. (laughs) Right. Thanks for listening to Noise Filter, your public health podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Noise Filter podcast. Follow us on social media and leave us a review letting us know your favorite part of the show. You can find me, Hope Hickerson, at hopehickerson.com. And you can find me at Dr. Mark Allen Derry or at the Dr. Derry. That's D-R-D-E-R-Y. To see and share our amazing animations and find out more information about us, the show, as well as links to our social media, go to noisefiltershow.com. We are grateful to our sponsors, including Access Health Louisiana and the End the Epidemic Initiative, who are working to bring equitable health outcomes to everyone they serve. Hope, any last words? Stay well out there, folks, and continue taking steps to keep yourself and your loved ones healthy. That includes exercise, a good diet, getting adequate sleep, and seeing your healthcare providers regularly. And protect yourself and others by getting the COVID-19 vaccine and booster, wearing a mask, and social distancing wherever possible. Remember, health is a human right. Concerning the operations and programmings of KBU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBU Community Radio's open meeting policy is available on our website kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in station activity at KBU, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Governance and Policy Committee meets quarterly 
on the third Tuesday of March, June, September, and December at 6 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify that a meeting is being held. There's something missing and I'm lit and I got something to say. Good evening, you're listening to Transpositive here on KBOO Community Radio. And tonight we're talking with um, trans advocate and public speaker Ryan Sounds. Ryan, welcome to Transpositive. Thank you so much, Emma, for having me. Thank you. Um, so Ryan, first, I, I just like to let our listeners get to know you for folks who haven't heard of you before. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I am now an international speaker. Uh, I work with corporations. I work with health serving agencies. I work with our federal government, including becoming the first person to address the United States courts um, outside a lawyer for a Heritage Month event uh, and universities and communities as well. And my area of focus is human growth and development in relation to both sexual orientation and gender identity. So for the past 17 years now, I've been traveling around, not only providing foundational uh, information and education around this topic, uh, but also sharing my own personal story of my transition from female to male, uh, which took place back in May, which started to take place back in May of 2005 in Lincoln, Nebraska. Oh, great, thank you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your transition story um, to begin with? Um, so you, you transitioned in Nebraska. Can you, can you tell us your coming out story, basically? Yes. Well, um, so I was born in 1979, so I grew up in the 80s. Um, so trans issues were not something that you know we really talked about. We did in the 80s have a lot of great gender bending movies to watch, but that was about it. Uh, and so um, my coming out story as far as trans actually first started a year prior in 2004 when uh, I came out as lesbian at age 24. Uh, but when I came out as lesbian, it didn't feel right for me. And I didn't know what that meant um, until December 2004, I was in Boston, Massachusetts. I was at an independently owned LGBT bookstore called Calamus Bookstore. It's since been closed due to the owner's passing. Uh, but I found a book called The Body Alchemy by Lauren Cameron, and it was transsexual portraits. So not only did Lauren share his own um, portraits that he took of himself in this book, he also shared all these other guys from the Bay Area that had been born assigned female that transitioned to male. And so when I saw that at age, back in 2004, I just immediately knew who I was from even thinking back to my childhood and my dreams of being a boy. And I was feeling like I wish to be a boy. Um, and so 
From that, I got online and started doing research on how to transition, which in you know late 2004, early 2005 was a very different world than today. Uh, but I found three guys' websites where they shared their transition diaries. And then I got onto some support groups through Yahoo that were anonymous to be able to talk to people to learn how to transition. Um, as I mentioned in my introduction, I began in May of 2005 with a chest surgery in Omaha, Nebraska. And then the next month I started on hormone therapy uh, my transition became the focus of a documentary called Gender Rebel that was on the Logo Network. And so they filmed my chest surgery. Uh, they filmed me getting my first um, prescription for testosterone. And they filmed the struggles that I was having, both in my romantic relationship with my female partner, who was lesbian identified, uh, but then also with my family. And so that documentary helped me advance um, my career. Um, and my speaking, and also uh, helped me see the importance of storytelling, um, because I really feel storytelling is a way, the best way to try to approach this work and breaking down people's defense mechanisms, because it's it's hard to argue with human beings that when you see them, you get to see the kindness in them. What was it like transitioning in such a public way? You know, <laughs> it's just, I guess, I just never really think too deeply about it. Like, you know, I am out there sharing my personal story almost every day now to complete strangers. And, you know, I've been protested by the Westboro Baptist Church. I've received hate mail, I've received death threats, um, you know, and I just keep going because I think that also shows the power of stories um, and the importance of stories. So when you, but when you first transitioned, did you know, I mean, did you know that you were going to be doing it so publicly? Was that something that, you know, you anticipated or was it, did it come first as a surprise? I mean, did that help kind of lead you to becoming a public speaker? Um, well, I was doing public speaking since 1999 as a peer educator. So I've always been in, I think everything just kind of molded in, on top of each other. So to give you a little bit of background, I have uh, multiple academic degrees, uh, Bachelor of Arts in Cultural Anthropology and English, a Master's of Arts in English focused on creative writing, and a Master's of Arts in Educational Psychology focused on human health behavior. And throughout those eight years of my college work, I was trying to figure out a way to do personal narrative storytelling with public health and community health well-being. And so I guess in a way, maybe I, I've always been driven to be very public about this, my story, just because, um, I don't know, I, again, you just see the impact and influence it has. And one, people understanding more about themselves in relation to gender, but then also learning more about people in their lives. Um, the documentary, I didn't, I think I was just really excited to be in the documentary. <laughs> because I love documentaries. Uh, mm -hmm. And then the public speaking, actually, as far as my, my, my storytelling, when I first, so when I graduated from my second master's program, I was hired as a health educator with Planned Parenthood. Uh, and actually, right when I walked through those doors, I said to them, I want Planned Parenthood to offer hormone therapy services to transgender community. There's no reason you shouldn't. You're a sexual and reproductive health care agency. You know, and they said, this is back in 2005, and I'm, I'm joking when they said this, but like, okay, health educator, that's nice. Go along your way. Uh, well, I'm a type A personality, so when I see something I think needs to happen, I'm going to make it happen. And um, we actually became one of the first affiliates in the nation to begin offering hormone therapy services in January of 2010. So it was a, that was powerful. But 
I'm kind of digressing for a second. So with the storytelling, what happened is when I first entered in as a health educator, I would go out and give talks on LGBTQ identities, but I would stick with terminology, language, and statistics. I did not share about my personal story. But one day I was working with some counseling students and I just really feel like, felt like they weren't connecting to the topic. And so I decided to out myself and I just have never gone back since because again, I just see the power of that. When it's also meshed with foundational research-based science and transgender medicine history, because um, I'm very serious about this work and sticking with our medical history on it. So, um, great. I, I'm, I'm going to get to that, uh, talking about transgender medical history, and th this may actually be a good question to open up that discussion. Um, so, kind of jumping forward a little bit to the current time, um, with the recent uh, SCOTUS ruling um, on Roe, uh, one of the items that's been circulating around in the press around trans issues is how this ruling might affect um, access to hormones at um, centers, you know, like like Planned Parenthood. Can you can you talk about how the SCOTUS ruling might be affecting uh, access to transgender health services um, up up and coming, and how can we fight back against that? You know, I, I can't speak very eloquently towards that just because I haven't seen um, anything at this point related to it, um, or I, I also haven't been specifically following um, the Roe v. Wade uh, aftermath just due to the other demands that I currently have in my life and work that I do. Um, I would be hopeful that this would not prevent access to people accessing hormone therapy, but I think we always can have that fear of, is the government somehow gonna take away our rights and access to transitioning? Um, I'm hopeful that won't happen. I, I look back to 2020 with the SCOTUS majority ruling of six to three with the uh, Title VII uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964, where they have declaratively stated that both sexual orientation and gender identity are protected classes underneath that Civil Rights Act. In fact, Justice Neil Gorsuch said to be merely fired for being gay and lesbian or, or gay and transgender defies the law. Uh, so I'm hopeful that we'll have other uh, protections in place to be able to fight if there is some type of ruling that could prevent us to have access to a very, very important medication because I can just say for myself with hormone therapy, when, when I got that first shot of testosterone, while with everything in my transition, that was what I was most nervous about just because, you know, you can see the physical changes with testosterone. Surgeries, you could still cover, your, uh, uh, cover up your body. Uh, but when I got that first shot, it was like a chemical balance happened within me. And like my lights, lights got turned on within me that I had been missing. So this is an important medication for people to have access to. Um. How do we as a community respond to pejorative labels that are put on trans educators, trans healthcare providers um, regarding helping out trans kids who are in the schools who want to learn more about trans healthcare, who maybe want access to things like puberty blockers, um, counseling, and um, you know other services related to trans healthcare. How do we deal with um, the current onslaught against uh, you know having uh, open, honest, and frank conversations about gender identity in schools? You know, I am currently working across the nation with different schools on this very topic, and it's a very difficult one to navigate because people's emotions 
um, and irrational states of thinking are getting in the way of logic and what is factual and true and scientific. For me specifically, I always try to stick with what we see in science and also provide that education on human growth and development so that I can help people understand that when it comes to one's sexual orientation, when it comes to one's sense of gender, that develops at a very young state and age and continues to grow and evolve as someone continues to grow and evolve because sexuality is dynamic, it's not static. And so for me, I'm trying to stick with that rational basis uh, and with facts and to state that First off, statistically speaking, the number of people that actually, especially for youth that move forward in states of transition are still like very statistically low. So, but that doesn't mean that, that they don't have, those youth don't have the right to make those informed decisions and choices in their lives while they're also guided with their parents or legal guardian and a medical practitioner and mental health practitioner. Uh, for me, when I see ongoing uh, longitudinal research coming out that shows the positive benefits of both social transitioning and access to pubertal blockers as well as hormone therapy, um, you just can't argue with that. Versus when we see when people don't have access to that, we see the increase in psychological and physical distress and the further increase in health disparities, such as eating disorders, substance use, self-interest behaviors, and suicide. So I look at this too from both the physical health and behavioral health aspects of this is ethically the right thing to do versus let's just ignore it or just wait and see if this is a phase. Because when we when we really look at how great much great care has been put into our standards of cares and practices with, with transgender youth, this isn't a, coming from a place of experimental. This is coming from a great place of caring. Why do you think that there has been so much backlash against having access to these life-saving and vital medications and services and therapies for transgender youth, especially in um, conservative states. Why has there been so much backlash against this? Why are we a target? Uh, one, just misleading information. Two, political divisiveness. And three, religious concerns and beliefs. So people may say, you shouldn't be transitioning any of these youth. You should just make them live in the sex they were assigned. And then when they're adults, they can make a decision. Um, that's their opinions, but that's not what we're seeing as being healthy or helpful if we look at the science. <laughs> it's, uh, but people don't want to look at the science. Uh, they, they want to, again, stick with their emotions, their religious and political beliefs. And right now we're just a target when in the media and with politicians. And so it's like, we're in the front burner. I've been doing this work for so long. And right now I do see a huge ramp up that's gonna require a lot of further advocacy to dissuade um, kind of like reefer madness, <laughs> the trans mm -hmm. madness, which it's just gonna take work. And I think it's gonna have to be, you know, ongoing calm, um, clear statements to try to help people learn more. What does the science say? The science says that, first off, when we look at social, socially transitioning, that's where you don't even have any form of medical intervention. But with social transition, a research study had found that they saw a notable decrease in both psychological and physical distress. While it didn't completely go away, such as anxiety and depression, there was a notable de decrease compared to youth who were not allowed to socially transition. Um, science also shows that between the ages of, I believe, 9 to 13, um, 
is an age range where youth may learn more about how their sex assigned at birth and gender are actually aligned. I mean, they aren't trans, but they had that experience of being able to explore their gender to understand more about how it is aligned versus not aligned. Um, or those youth are gonna find that further at that age range that their gender is different from the sex assigned at birth. So we have to pay attention to that as well. Um, I always say, when we look at youth, look at behaviors uh, and personality. If you have someone that used to be a really bubbly person or really socially engaged and interactive, but now they're socially isolating, they're very depressed, their grades are dropping, they're not as engaged in school activities, those are red flags there that we need to be able to listen to. And one of those red flags could be something around their gender, where they need to either just talk to someone to learn more about their expression, this doesn't mean transition, or their deeper understanding of their sense of self being different than what their physical body has developed to. What about the people who argue that we should wait until, until these children are legal adults to make any kinds of decisions regarding these issues? How do we respond to that? It's very cruel when someone knows who they are to keep them in a state that is not who they are. And again, that increases eating disorders, it increases social anxiety, it increases substance use and self-interest behaviors and suicide. So this wait to see approach is not the healthy approach, nor the one that for people that specialize in this field where they dedicate their life to learning more about how to help guide. We have found consistently that the gender affirmative care model is the most ethical one to use when approaching this. What about the issues around athletics? One of the things that the um, that our opponents always bring up, and they, they use it as um, as a uh, just I, I mean it's 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 really a trope. But how do we respond when they say, "Oh, you know, trans kids shouldn't be participating in athletics because they have an advantage"? Well, in another longitudinal research study, they found that there was not an advantage for trans youth versus youth who aren't. Uh, you know, in the research, we delineate currently between cisgender youth and transgender youth. Um, I don't like doing those delineations outside of research, um, just because I feel like it's creating further us versus them type mentality in society, which is not healthy. Uh, but this is, again, just irrational statements that is also leaning towards bias since the specific target is really transgender girls, not transgender boys. I always say, you know, hormones do not dictate your skills as an athlete. It's your time, patience, and practice and dedication to a sport. When I was in middle school, a middle school female, uh, I went over to the town next to me to play on a men's church league, an adult men's church league. I was allowed to play for two weeks before the administration came in and asked me to leave because they were fearful that I was gonna get hurt. Even though in reality, I was hurting the guys because my dad, my dad always taught me no blood, no foul. So um, <laughs> uh, I was a female middle schooler and I was wiping the floor with these adult males, right? And so this type of statement and thinking is just so irrational. In fact, I actually wish we had more and more intramural engagements because then we could all push each other uh, and have different ways of trying to challenge one another. So you happen to mention when you were growing up, um, around the age when you were growing up or somewhere, I guess near it was when the Brandatina story happened. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Did that have any effect on you as someone who was 
you know, um, transgender growing up in Nebraska? Right. So I didn't realize I was trans. So Brandon Tina was first, you know, I guess disclaimer, this is this language is graphic, but this is what happened to Brandon for people that don't know Brandon's story. Um, he lived in Lincoln and um, he ended up down in Falls City where he was living as Brandon and two men discovered that and raped him. Uh, the cops brought Brandon in and belittled him and didn't do anything about these two guys. And then a week later, these two guys found him in Humboldt and killed him and two other people that were in this house, this farmhouse there. So the Brandon Tina story was one that was shared and this has happened back in 1993. Uh, so this has been shared um, over the years and there was a Hollywood movie with Hilary Swank called uh, Boys Don't Cry that was about Brandon's story. But again, this was Hollywood's version. It's not Brandon's true story. It's very weird when you actually meet people who were cousins or friends of Brandon uh, and hear their stories and, and accounts versus what we've learned through either documentaries or the Hollywood version. So I do remember when it happened and it was just, it was sad, but for me, I'd never really put it into as, as a, at that age of something that would impact or affect me because I, I didn't understand trans issues back then. Uh, I mean, we didn't even talk about being gay or lesbian. That was just all taboo. So sexuality was a very different, I mean, we just, especially in a small farming community in Nebraska, <laughs> it was just something you didn't talk about. So how have things changed for you now? Do you, do you have, um, I mean, going back, do you, do you ever go back to Nebraska and how, how is it for you now as an adult? So I actually still live in Nebraska. I live in oh. Omaha now. Um, mm -hmm. I went to Lincoln for my uh, college and stayed there. And then 12 years ago, I moved here and I may move. I don't know. I, I, I do like the airport here. People are friendly. So for me, it's very important to stay in states that have either leadership or forms of opinions that are against <laughs> LGBT people because, it's, again, when you get to know people, it can help break down some of those forms of biases. Uh, and also, it's important to be able to provide that education so that we can broaden people's understandings and horizons on this topic um, versus having further illog illogic or um, fear-based tactics leading the way, which is what I'm going to be seeing, I know, in this next decade, is that we have to all keep going, because in the end, truth will prevail, and and science and logic will be guiding us, not uh, this fear. So, I mean, I'm even seeing it right now, something's happening due to a training that I provided, where the amount of support far outweighs the amount of the fear-based um, misconstrued statements being made. I'd, I'd like to talk to you, since this is a show that's also for the trans community, um, wh whenever I have on people with different gender identities and, you know, different kinds of um, uh, expressions, non-binary, gender fluid, I always like getting into um, a little bit of a personal conversation about how we experience gender. and the ways in which we experience it that are the same and the ways in which we maybe experience it that are different. So I'd like to start off with just a really broad and general question, which is um, how do you feel like your experience of gender has changed with your transition from female to male? That is a, that's a big question. Um, 
I have, I'll just say that my experience in my body is what has changed and it's changed in such a positive way. I feel so much comfort uh, in my body. I love hearing my name, Ryan. I just, I love hearing that when people use my name. Uh, I love that I can grow a beard. Um, I brush it several times a day, every day. <laughs> so I just, I feel good in the clothes that I put on. Like, I don't know. I, it just, it's amazing that our society recognized the need to help people. In this case, I would say I identify as transsexual. Um, and that the medical technologies have advanced in ways that allow us to actually live our lives in, I guess you say, the gender that feels most comfortable for us. There's the, like when when I transitioned, I was told to kind of expect, um, you know, to be treated as a woman. Like in other words, basically to be treated like a second class citizen. But I mean, I have to admit that since I've transitioned, I haven't really experienced that. I mean, personally, even though I know that that's a narrative that like I'm supposed to be aware of and I'm supposed to like look around. But in, I, I mean, I've been post. I mean, I've been transitioned for a long time and I haven't really noticed that that so much. Did you experience um, a transition in how people treated you, how they respected you, um, how you were listened to uh, when you transitioned from female to male? Well, I will, I will say I get a lot more, well, I get now, I never got it before I transitioned, but you got it, buddy, or you got it, boss from people and I don't really like that. I don't like people calling me a boss because I don't want to be dominant over someone else. <laughs> uh, I would say that what I probably notice more is just me being more aware of here. So for example, if I'm walking on a sidewalk and there is a person that from appearance you would assume is female, um, I will you know, make a few noises just to like clear my throat or something so people know that I'm behind them. But then you know, I'll walk farther behind or farther around to give people space. Um, when I'm in conversation, like if I'm in conversation with people identify as female and they start to apologize, like say, oh, sorry. I always say, why are you apologizing? There's nothing to apologize about. <laughs> so, you know, I think just living 25 years socially reared female um, have made me just really more mindful of how people experience me, just seeing me as male and not knowing my story. Mm -hmm. If you had had a chance, would you have taken the opportunity to transition at a younger age as trans kids now have the opportunity to? I don't know. That's that's a really hard question to answer just because we weren't given that opportunity or options. Um, I also, you know, I say in my talks, like I always share my name given to me at birth and then my name story because it's very important to me. And I always say, you know, Kimberly Ann Salins, for the first 25 years of my life, I lived as Kimberly Ann Salins. I walked this earth and planet. I got all my academic training through that lens. I went through an anorexia nervosa eating disorder through that female body and form, but that also drove my passion to try to help people understand more about eating disorders. So it's like, this was just meant to be my life path. Um, and I just, I wouldn't want to change that actually from the experience that I, that I had um, to today. I don't regret transitioning. That's for sure. But um, I also am not sad that I didn't do it at a younger age. I'm, I'm happy with it being at age 25 for myself.
Transgender people don't live here. I've never met anyone who's transgender. I swear I don't know someone who's transgender. Transgender and non-binary people like me hear this all the time. But according to the HOC Foundation, there are more than 2 million transgender people in the United States. We live in every community across this country. You might be surprised to hear that there are more transgender and non-binary people in the United States than there are. Starbucks, McDonald's, and Walmart locations combined. In fact, if you put us all together, there'd be more non-binary and transgender folks than the populations of DC, or Nebraska, or Maine, or Idaho, or West Virginia. As a matter of fact, 15 states have a lower population than the amount of trans folks in the U.S. So here are a few things to keep in mind. You don't always know when a person is trans. But we're your neighbors, your co-workers, your students, your customers, and even your friends and family. We exist in every culture, todas las culturas, throughout human history. And while we're more visible than ever before, sometimes you just don't see us. So when you hear about politicians pushing forward discriminatory bills, know this, these bills address problems that aren't even real. Problems that don't actually exist. But we do. 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 And we need your support. Thank you. So it will be interesting if the National Center for Transgender Equality in this, because they're currently having people take a pledge for the 2022 survey. So they're doing a new one. The last, so they've done two other surveys so far. The first was conducted in 2010 and released in 2011 with, I believe, around 6,500 respondents. And then they did, conducted another one in 2015 that was released in 2016 with almost 28,000 respondents. And the reason for such a dramatic increase was one, just having internet in terms of social media. And two, they did expand ways of people identifying, um, which in a way, being someone that really likes to look at data, I wish they would parse that out further so, so we could understand more uh, about the differences from even just forms of expression that's non-conforming versus folks who's transitioning their bodies. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was, you, you must be reading my mind because I was actually hoping to get into that conversation here in just a minute. Um, so when when we transition, like there's all kinds of transitioning now. I mean, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's, there, there, there's, there, there's very traditional transitioning that m most people kind of understand when they think about you know, transgender identities. But then there's also all, all other kinds of transitioning. There's people who transition to non-binary. There's people who transition to gender fluid. There's people who transition from gender fluid to trans. There's people who consider themselves both trans and non-binary. Um, the biggest category uh, in the 2015-16 survey in terms of uh, areas of growth and of identity was uh, non-binary. And you know, if you look on social media nowadays, um, 
you know, I mean, you can see that there's been this huge growth in people who self-identify as non-binary. How do we, as people who have identified as binary trans within the community, advocate and have really open and frank conversations with people who are non-binary? Like, what do we have in common? What are our differences? How do we support the non-binary community? Can you talk about that a little bit? What is non-binary? Yeah, you know, I really struggle with this language and I don't want to take away people's affirmation and their identities and the language that brings them sense of meaning. But again, I'm one that comes from science. <laughs> and scientifically, a human being has both masculine and feminine energy. A human being has both masculine and feminine characteristics and a blend of both of androgyny. And so this is for me, I feel harmful language because it's setting up this thought system in our brain that people are binary or non-binary, when in reality, we're all very complex and we all have masculine and feminine within us and also, again, that blend. And so this creates further us versus them type ways of thinking. And I'm also very upset by researchers now identifying people as binary transgender um, because for me, it's like I don't identify as binary, nor would I ever uh, because I'm not, <laughs> nobody is, you know? And so I, this language is something that it's, it's a little bit frustrating to me. Uh, so I actually just want to know more about people's sense of self. Like, you know, if people want to talk about it, like just kind of talking more about, you know, how do you feel about yourself and your sense of who you are and your comfort in your body and, you know, the, the way that you present yourself and the way that people interact with you, like, I'm just curious to know more about people's lives outside the specific that the language, um, because right now we have youth who are using over 100 terms to identify their sexual orientation and over 100 terms to identify their gender. Um, and that's a lot. <laughs> that's 200, yeah. <laughs> yeah orientation and gender, <laughs> uh -huh. and how much this is related to either slang or related to language that got picked up and now is just easily used because people are thinking again in that black and white systems category of thinking versus all the grand nuances of human sexuality that is part of each and every one of us. Um, wow. Can can you like rattle off all 200 gender identities and <laughs> oh, sexual gosh, orientation? No. No. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I mean, yeah, what we're well. seeing is an expansion, you know, we're in a very interesting time right now. So the Williams Institute just released a new report that found that for transgender adults, the amount of people identifying as transgender who are adults is remaining steady, but the amount of youth who identify as transgender has doubled, all right? And so what's happening is youth are now given permission to explore something that we weren't allowed to explore, especially um, the times that we were growing up. Not only are they giving them permission to explore, we now have social media, we now have Google, we now have smartphones, you know, there's all these different ways to be able to get information and to be curious about it and to try things on. And so I think that that is important. Um, but what then is happening is that kids are starting to bully other kids that don't identify a certain way. And so they're um, bullying each other and policing each other with the language and so that that's problematic and that that needs to be addressed unfortunately adults don't know what to do with any of this because we're this is a new chasm that we're going through that we're just going to have to kind of go through it and grow uh, and figure out how we can best um, assist in development versus creating further confusion or senses of isolation and not fitting in 
What do you think we'll come out with on the other end? Do you think that we'll come out with views that are more uh, about inclusion and tolerance? I mean, maybe we'll have more of these intramural sports leagues like you're talking about, and we'll live in a world where masculinity and femininity aren't like treated as just completely polar opposites as binaries. Is, is that what you imagine we might come out on the other end with? My hope is that we get to a place where we finally recognize that identity is not dictated by genitalia um, and that genitalia does not define the masculine and feminine in oneself so that people, all people, have more freedom to just be, be able to be who they are, to be able to share their thoughts and feelings, to be able to experience their feelings without feeling shame or guilt around it. Uh, the more we can just open this up to be like, it's okay to let kids just explore and play with clothes and toys. This is not create a transgender child. <laughs> let kids just explore and play and let them use their thoughts and access their feelings and be an adult to help in fostering that growth versus an adult that makes, again, a child feel bad about themselves. Because then what happens is that shame and guilt penetrates the skin and that can create a lot of different trust issues uh, for an individual and also potentially some anger. Um, at the world because they, again, feel bad about who they are and they don't know what to do with that. How do we respond to folks within the radical feminist community and within the women's community who say that transgender identity is erasing women? No, <laughs> no, no, transgender people are not erasing women, um, but we do need to be able to allow space for all people to be able to um, identify with with their gender uh, and find that sense of confidence in who they are and that, that sense of liberation. Um, to deny people access to spaces is frustrating because it's not that you're trying to take over a space, you're just trying to join into a space, you know? And then unfortunately, we lose important spaces that everybody can enjoy, like even thinking about which many people, I mean, I haven't thought about this forever, like the Michigan Women's Festival, <laughs> uh, you know, and how then that just closed down because of all the controversy of having transgender women in that space. I mean, recently, some of the conversations that tend to circulate around in popular media, for instance, are there's a great deal of upset over using terms like, you know, people who give birth rather than what some people would, they'd prefer just to use the term women. You know, mm -hmm. for instance, as people who give birth um, within the prisons, how do how do we have conversations about fair and equitable treatment for people who are incarcerated who are transgender? Oh, that's a whole that's a big area to navigate, especially with all the forms of injustice, and then also just looking at the minority stress model and what happens to transgender people, more specifically transgender women of color, uh, due to discrimination and racism and transphobia and homophobia, um, and linking that to also the prison system. So it's important for us to be able to have systems set up where individuals who are trans are respected um, and that we can have open communication with them to be able to do safety checks to see where it is that they feel safest uh, when being housed, uh, while also making it very clear that social isolation is not an option. That is, that's inhumane and cruel uh, to anyone to be socially isolated. So 
I do see different forms of systems doing work around this to create policies and forms of guidance, uh, but it's going to take a lot of education and also recognizing that you're navigating not only just the people that work within these systems, but then all the other inmates and whatever it is that they're carrying within themselves as well. Um, so this it's a difficult uh, area to navigate. When you um, when you go around and speak um, nationally, and when you talk to different kinds of organizations, um, what kind of feedback do you get from trans folks regarding the issue of being isolated, being um, rejected, being um, you know really really cut off from their families, which mm-hmm. seems to be an experience that's very common in in, in trans in trans communities, do, do you do you come across that much? And how, how do people that you speak with how do they deal with that? Um, people usually come up to me after a talk and start crying, and so then I always um, ask if they want a hug first. Um, I love to give hugs. Uh, then I like to say to them, please know, because my family. My parents and sister most specifically were not supportive of my transition at first um, and hurtful things were said and so what I say like to say to individuals is to remind them that whatever people say that hurt them it's not about them it's about the other person and their own fears and their own forms of judgment um, and lack of education on this and they're lashing out on you and using their emotions instead of trying to be mindful of your experience and being able to be in your shoes right so I say also have patience. So recognize that if you're in a situation where you do not have to stay in an environment of what feels un- not accepting. So for example, if, you're, if you don't have to live at home with your family, find where your chosen family and find a place where you do feel some sense of connection um, and have patience. You know, with my sister, I sent her an email after a few forms of communication that were hurtful and I just told her, when you no longer are judgmental towards me, I would like to have a relationship. But as long as you're being judgmental, I cannot be in communication with you. Um, you know, the other day I just spent an hour talking on the phone with my sister about something really important, and it, um, I felt very connected to her. And that's you know that was 17 years ago. So growth can, time can help help heal and create growth and change in one another, which, which is what I saw in my own family, which is also an important narrative that I like to get out there now, because oftentimes we hear the LGBT stories and all we hear is about the rejection and the hardship. Well, there can be a positive from this and there can be growth. Um, and so I like to share all the growth that happened within my own life with my family as a positive, even though we went through a really hard time together. Do you think that it's getting better? Like, do you think that there's more acceptance within families today for trans kids and even trans adults than there was maybe 20 years ago? Absolutely. And especially among parents of just, even just parents just being more open to, we don't have to define this. We just have to experience it with our child, right? I think the more we can do that to get outside of the intellect, to get outside of the language and to get more into just being and the spirit of being, um, and going again by the name that you like to go by, even if it's not your legally given name, uh, that, that's just very powerful to be able to do. And it, it creates more open communication and a sense of supportive families, you know, because positive supportive parenting is extremely important for not only your family unit, but also for the health of that family unit. 
what's some what are a few things that are important enough for parents who um are first just discovering that their kids are transgender um, to support first, them well first take a breath <laughs> uh to be able to be open to listening to their child about how they're experiencing gender and what it is that they're feeling and not try to be directive of what that child is feeling or be dismissive by saying it's just a phase you'll grow out of this someday. That directive and dismissiveness makes people shut down because you're not listening to them, you're telling them what they're feeling. So the next step then for parents is to, you know, recognize that they may have a lot of emotions coming up and a lot of questions because what parents want most for their child is for their child to be happy and healthy. So to be able to seek support groups with other parents is also important because then you can actually talk with other parents that have gone through this and navigated it. You can share those fears in a room where people can validate them, but also be there to support you through going through that. And you don't then bring that home and put it on your child because your child's already going through enough. They don't need your fears put on top of it. But it could be what you could start having conversations of just awareness of, you know, if you're starting to move into thinking about medical transitioning, uh, what that would look like. And then just also having questions about how do you see yourself currently in wanting a family in the future? Do you think that you would want kids? And if you do, how do you see that you would want them? Um, it's important to have those conversations. And the kid may be like, oh my gosh, I can't even think about that right now. But you, I do think we should bring it up because, you know, that's one thing I think about. I'm now 43 and, um, going through a new transition in my life that I actually did not want to go through, but sometimes life throws you things you have to move through. But I am sad in some ways that I was never able to have kids. But let me put, say that by, I'm really sad I was never, never able to have kids through me having sperm. Like I would have really liked to have been a dad um, and have that been, you know, through sperm. When I was in high school, you know, I dated guys and we would talk about our lives together and how we'd get married. And I always said, I'm not having kids. No kids going through this body. <laughs> so <laughs> never had that desire. In fact, with my hysterectomy, it was interesting because I did feel grief when I went in from hysterectomy back in 2006, because I realized I was removing my biological ability to pass on one, just my genetics and traits, but two, just my whole family lineage and you know I just xed myself out and so that that was it was hard to accept even though again I never wanted an egg to be the thing that brought something of myself into this world I you know I, I mean I think that when I when I think about it I, I mean I well first of all I I, I feel like um, you know the the human DNA is almost essentially identical like across the entire world that's why we're all you know so so closely related so i i don't really I, the other thing that i think about when i think about this conversation is how we have kind of turned genetic identity into a kind of property we, we've mm -hmm. turned it into a form of property and it's like this it's not really the way the nature works i mean the way the nature works is it works within population so, you know, what really matters, like, is the health of an entire population, not just a single individual. But, like, we, we've taken this idea about reproduction and we've just, we've, we've turned it into this thing that's so commodifiable. It's like, it's a piece of property that belongs within this cluster of property called a family. That family is a form of authority. That's a space of sovereignty. 
And so we've like put all of these ideas into individuality and then we've internalized that on our own reproduction. Mm-hmm. And so like, to me, it's, it's just really bizarre. The whole conversation is just strange, but I totally understand what you're saying because I think that a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know. It, it, as you age, it does get a little lonely when you just keep working. You don't have, I don't know. So it's yeah. just, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what about people who are coming out as adults? Like what kind of conversations should, should their families, their, their kids or their spouses, you know, I mean, a lot of people don't transition until later in life. And mm-hmm. so we talked a minute ago about like parents, what to expect with your kids. What about kids? What to expect with your parents? Well, you know, for a parent that's transitioning that has children, um, it, it always depends on the age of the children. So if they're younger, they usually are like, okay. And they just, it's just not really something that phases them. In fact, you know, I remember when I transitioned, my nephew was like three years old and he already thought I was a boy. So he was confused that I wasn't before. So that was interesting <laughs> uh, with, with him. Um, so the younger children usually just say, you know, I'm now going to be living as a girl and I'm going to be using this name and, you know, you can call me mom or dad. And those kids usually do really good with it. It's the older kids that could be having more issues because one, they're also exploring their own gender. Uh, but two, there's just a lot more questions around what does this mean and will other kids accept me? And, you know, how do we navigate these social spaces with you transitioning? Um, will I get teased for it? You know, there could also be some grief because a parent is changing in a way that they didn't experience a parent before. So having those conversations and then maybe looking at family counseling so that you can have someone in there to kind of help in the mediation if, if emotions or feelings get um, high, um, either through anger or sadness. So uh, we're getting pretty close to the end of the interview, Ryan. I just want to ask a few kind of short, fun questions maybe to close out the interview. Um, uh, one is, uh, what's, the, what's the best thing about being a man? What's, what, what, did you, what, what was the most fun thing about transitioning for you? Uh, well, I really, so I'm a backpacker, so I really love camping now because, you know, I had a lower surgery done and, you know, I was on Larry King Live twice and the second time Dr. Drew Pinsky was a host and he asked me like why I wanted to have a penis essentially and I said, well, I want a pee standing up. <laughs> and I always have and now I do and I like that. <laughs> so <laughs> people could be like, oh, gross or oh, I can't believe you said that. But you know what? I'm just going to tell you the truth. I, I, um, I'm really satisfied with just the freedom that I feel that I have in my body now. Who are, who are maybe one or two transgender people that you really look up to and admire? Well, Lauren Cameron, who now goes by Rex, um, his book, and then he was in all these different documentaries and different things like on the, the National Geographic uh, channel, like it was called like Taboo, it was a, it was a series. So his story um, and his strength, and then also his great skills of photography uh, providing you so much imp- uh, inspiration. And now there's guys that are in that book from the 1996 uh, that I know today that are dear friends of mine. So then it also really humanizes this more. Like I saw pictures of people, but now I actually know them and, and we talk on the phone and, you know, we'll go on a trip together or something. So that's also really amazing. It makes you just feel very human and connected with one another. 
did your transition affect um, your your sense of taste or your diet in any way? Like, did you change how you like to eat or what you like to eat? How, how did that go? Um, well, I mean, again, I had a history of anorexia nervosa, so me and eating is kind of a little dicey, but uh, mm, I sorry like, about that. I oh, it's, it's okay. It's uh, I, I've, I do like a lot of protein. Um, I can't eat whole wheat anymore. I'm not sure why, but I just can't eat whole wheat. So and that was after my transition, so I'm not sure what happened there. But um, I guess, you know, I, I always call myself a flexitarian. Like, I eat meat, but I could also eat a vegetarian diet, or I just have them both mixed because I love vegetables. Not the yeah. fruit, but I love vegetables. <laughs> and, and my last question, the most important one, um, boxers or briefs? Uh, boxers. Uh. Okay, great. Is <laughs> that <laughs> like, Bill Clinton Thanks. too? Wasn't he on yeah. once? <laughs> uh, so we've been talking tonight with Ryan Ryan Fellens, um, a transgender author, educator, public speaker. Ryan, if people would like to find out more about you and about you know some of the services that you offer and your you know what you do, where can they learn more about you? Well, I make my life very easy, uh, ryansalins.com. And on there, you can read more about my story. You can watch some YouTube videos. You can uh, read journal articles that I've written for peer-reviewed journals, or you can also purchase my books. Uh, Second Son came out in 2012, and that's the story of my life from childhood to five years in the transition. And then Transforming Manhood came out in 2019, and that's the story of navigating social media and the attacking culture that we presently have, uh, and also just navigating life um, in this world where people don't know who I am. Great. Well, thank you very much, Ryan. It's been a real pleasure having you on Trends Positive. Have a good evening. Thank you, Emma. I really enjoy talking to you. Hi, this is Emma with uh, Transpositive. That was Ryan Salins, um, a really great interview. And I just wanted to take a few minutes here at the end of the show to just kind of uh, talk with you about why I would like to encourage you to support KBU Community Radio. Um, I'm on the uh, finance committee at KBU, and I have a chance to see what an amazing organization KBU is. Um, we currently have, um, I believe it's 13, uh, 12 or 13 employees who are really hardworking. Uh, KBU is a unionized shop. Uh, we're really trying hard to increase the wages and to uh, make things better for our employees at KBU. And that does cost money. I mean, inflation is going up in Portland, it's going up around the country, and the dollar doesn't go quite as far as it used to. And we at KBU could not survive without our employees. Our employees are just uh, these amazing people who do incredible work. Uh, everything from programming to engineering, uh, to finances, to development, to membership support. 
Um, all of the amazing things that our employees at KBU do cost money. And uh, it also costs money to keep up our studios and to bring you all of this great programming that you're on KBU every day. So I would really, uh, I would just love it if you would consider giving uh, to KBU today, uh, or maybe even best, best yet, making a recurring uh, donation to KBU. Uh, you can do that really easy. Just go online to kboo.fm slash give. And uh, there uh, you can make a pledge of any amount. Um, it, it does cost a lot of money to ra uh, run KBU. I have to admit, you know, it's it costs uh, pretty close to a million dollars every year to run KBU. And it's getting more expensive. And your support uh, really makes a big, big difference. Uh, we have about 4,000 members right now, but we know that not everybody who listens to KBU gives. And if you uh, haven't given recently, maybe right now would be a great time to consider it. So again, if you would consider going to KBU, go to kboo.fm slash give and make a one-time or a recurring pledge to KBU. Uh, your support uh, in any amount, it you know, it could be just a small amount, or if you can give more, that's great. But your support in any amount will make a huge difference. So uh, again, if you can, please go to kboo.fm slash give and uh, give today. Thanks so much for listening to Transpositive and have a great evening.